Last week, we read the, the incredible story of Jesus bringing three of his disciples, Peter, James, and John, up on a mountain where they would then see Jesus transfigured before their eyes. His appearance was, was radically changed. His, his face became as bright as the sun, right? And his clothes were shining a, a brilliant white, whiter than anyone could bleach them. And then as they are, are taking this whole thing in, that they saw not just Jesus standing on the mountain in his transfigured state, but then they saw Moses and Elijah standing there with him, talking with him about his soon departure. That's a lot, right? That, that's, a, that's a lot to take in. But then on top of all that, after, after seeing Jesus transfigured, after seeing Moses and Elijah, then Peter jumps in and says, hey, we should build some tabernacles. It's going to be great. We'll put some tents here. We can stay here for a long time. It's going to be awesome. And then God the Father, the, 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 the cloud descends on the mountain, and God the Father speaks, right, to, to Peter, to James and John, and, and he says, this is my son, talking about Jesus, and says, he's my chosen one. Listen to him. Stop talking. Stop talking, Peter, and just listen to him. And as I said last week, for, for these three disciples, their time with Jesus on that mountain was, was a moment that they would never, ever forget. It was a literal mountaintop experience. But as much as they would have loved to stay with Jesus on that mountain, there was still work to be done down below in the valley. And so Peter, James, and John, they followed Jesus back down the mountain. And that's where we're going to pick up our, our, our study today. In verse 37, we read that on the next day, when they had come down from the mountain, a great crowd met him. And behold, a man from the crowd cried out, teacher, I beg you to look at my son, for he is my only child. And behold, a spirit seizes him, and he suddenly cries out. It convulses him so that he foams at the mouth and shatters him and will hardly leave him. And I begged your disciples to cast it out, but they could not. Luke says that on the next day, on the next day, th think about that for just a second. Put yourself in, in Peter, James, and John's shoes for just a moment. What a contrast from one day to the next. What a difference 24 hours can make. One day, they're, they're up on a mountain having this you know, extraordinary event, right? They're, they're in the presence of God the Father, right? Incredible. They heard the voice of God. They saw the glorified uh, Jesus on the mountain. They just, they, they're in the presence of just pure holiness, right? What a moment. Now, just one day later, as they come down the mountain, Jesus and these three disciples are immediately confronted with the pain and the brokenness of our world. What a contrast, right? Immediately, they're, they're confronted by another great crowd filled with, with needy people. We, we've seen this over and over in this, in this study. And, 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 and worse than that, immediately they are confronted with the presence of evil, right? They're confronted by this, this, this dad who comes and says, my son is filled with this evil spirit that is destroying him. The day before, they were in the presence of total holiness, and now they're down in the valley, and they're in the presence of, of the evil that is present in our world. What a contrast. <laughs> you know Peter was probably thinking it. I told you. I told you we should have just stayed up on the mountain, right? These people are crazy down here. It's crazy. We should just stay on the mountain. It was so good. So good. 
But what a great reminder. What a great reminder for us. Because as much as we love those mountaintop experiences, right, where we have time alone with the Lord, just enjoying His presence. You ever had moments like that, just like you're having a time with the Lord, you just hope it will never end? As much as we love those times when we're just worshiping Jesus and, and, and spending time in His presence, worshiping Him alone or worshiping Him with others, as great as those times are, and they are great, we need to remember that the Lord has work for us to do in the valley. We're not meant to stay up on the mountain, at least on this side of eternity. When we get to eternity, it's forever, right? But right now, He has work for us to do. And we need to remember that when we come out of those mountaintop experiences, we don't come out alone, do we? Jesus comes with us, right? His presence is with us. Jesus goes into the valleys with us, just as he does here with Peter, James, and John. And he works, Jesus works in and through us to love and to serve those around us. So here's the situation. Here's the situation. While Jesus has been up on the mountain with three of his disciples, that left how many down below? How many? Nine. Good job. I used to teach math, so we got to throw some math in there, okay? That was a hard one. Twelve disciples, three on the mountain, nine down below. Okay, so the nine disciples are down below with the crowds, and they're trying to minister to the people. But things aren't going very well for the other nine. Not only do we read here that the disciples had been unsuccessful in freeing this demon-possessed boy, but if you read the other gospel accounts in Mark's gospel, in chapter 9, verse 14, we're told that when Jesus arrives, he finds his disciples surrounded by a a great crowd with scribes, scribes who, who are arguing with them. So Jesus comes down and he finds his disciples surrounded by a not-so-friendly crowd. Some of the religious leaders who, who were opposed to Jesus, they were opposed to his ministry, are there and they are arguing with the nine disciples. Mark tells us that when Jesus shows up, he, he, he says, what are you all arguing about? What, what's going on? What, what are we arguing about? And it's at that moment that this father with a, with a demon-possessed son speaks up and, sa- and, and begs Jesus for help. He says, Jesus, Jesus, would you please look at my son? Would you look at my son? He is my only child. By the way, Luke is the only gospel writer who includes that little word only. But this is a, this is a desperate situation for this father. My son, he's he's living in this place of of near constant torture. Can you imagine? Can you imagine being his father? Can you imagine how much your heart would break every time you saw your son being thrown into this fit of rage by this demonic spirit? When When we read the father's description about his son, if you read Matthew's account, Mark's account, and Luke's account, if you put them all together, we, we get a fuller sense of, of the type of torment that this boy had lived with since he was a child. We don't know how old he, he is at this point, but since he was a child, he's been living with this. And this father tells Jesus that not only is, the, is this spirit, you know, throwing his son to the ground and all these things, but he's actually, the spirit has made his son mute. He can't even communicate with his dad anymore. He can't even talk because of this evil spirit. And he says, when, when this spirit takes control, his son would, he said he was, my son suddenly cries out. He suddenly cries out. Other translations say that, that he, would, he would scream. As a parent, you know, when, when your kids are out playing outside and you hear that scream, man, you just, everything right? You drop everything and you just run as fast as you can to be there for your child. But this, this is the place where this, this boy dwelt. And he would begin having these seizures where he would be thrown to the ground, convulsing, grinding his teeth and foaming at the mouth. Now, 
when we read that description, what, what does it sound like? Yeah, it sounds like uh, what we would call an epileptic seizure, right? But what we discover in this text is that for this boy, his seizures were not merely a, a neurological condition brought on by a brain disorder. There was, there was a very real spiritual component to this boy's suffering. These symptoms were the manifestation of an evil spirit for this, for this boy. If it was merely just a physical thing, Jesus could have just simply healed him, right? The dad shows up and dad says, my, my son has an evil spirit and this is what it does to him. Jesus could have said, no, 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 it's not that. He just has epilepsy. I'll heal him physically. But he doesn't deny the fact that there's a real evil spirit here and, and we'll see he's going to, to heal him. In Mark's gospel, we're told that this demon had often cast him into fire and into water in order to destroy him. You know, that's what Satan has come to do, right? To steal, to kill, to destroy. That's what he wants to do. So this demon regularly tried to destroy this boy by burning him, and, and they tried to drown him in water. Can you just think about it? How many times, I wonder, how many times had this father had to rescue his son in, in the water or from the fires? It reminds me of the, the story that we looked at a few weeks ago in Luke chapter 8. You guys remember the story about the demoniac? that we looked at, this guy lived, according to Luke, he lived among the tombs. And he was so powerful and so strong because of the demonic presence inside of him that they tried to chain him, but they couldn't, he would break the chains that held him, right? And he wandered around out in the tombs. He wandered around, we're told, naked, crying out in pain and cutting himself with stones until Jesus set him free, which is exactly what Jesus is gonna do for this boy as well. But as we read here, but before the father, before this father you know, came to Jesus begging for his help, in verse 40, we're told that he had already begged the disciples to cast out the demon. Why would he do that? Why would this guy run and ask the disciples to cast out demons? Well, because word had spread that these guys had the ability to cast out demons. It, this was a totally legitimate request. You see, while Jesus was up on the mountain with, with Peter, James, and John, this father knew that, well, it's not Jesus, but I've heard that these nine have the ability to do this, so I'm gonna ask them. Back in... Um, Verse one in this chapter, we read that, that Jesus had called his 12 together and he gave them power and authority over all demons and to cure diseases. And remember, they went out two by two, right? They went out by twos and they traveled all throughout Galilee and they were healing people who were sick, they were preaching the good news and they were casting out demons, and so no doubt, no doubt the word spread. And so this father says, man, there's hope. There's hope for my son. I, I've heard what Jesus and his disciples are doing around Galilee. So he goes to them and he asks them to help. And they tried. And they failed. They failed. I wonder what this scene might have looked like, you know? This dad, whose son is tormented, right? Right? This dad comes up to the nine disciples and he, he's begging them, like, please, could, could you heal my son? He's demon-possessed. Please, would you set him free? I've heard that you can do this. And you know that the nine disciples were like, oh, yeah. Psh, no problem. No problem. We've, we've been casting demons all over Galilee. We got this. This is no problem. No problem at all. Now, Peter Peter, James, and John, they're off with Jesus on the mountain, right? So the other nine are like, I don't know, what, did they draw straws? Like, who wants to do it? You know, you want to do it? Andrew, you up? 
Oh, I got it, I got it. Philip, no. Who, who's going to do it? Well, it doesn't matter who went first. It doesn't matter who went first because I believe they all tried and they all failed. They all failed. And so this father says to Jesus, I begged your disciples to cast it out, but they could not. Now, what's interesting about that is that we just read it in verse one that Jesus gave them power and authority over all demons. And his dad says, but they couldn't do it. They couldn't do it. Well, in verse 41, we read that Jesus answered. And he said, oh, faithless and twisted generation, how long am I to be with you and bear with you? Bring your son here. I love this verse, not because I like what he says, but I love it because it totally disrupts our view of Jesus, doesn't it? You, like this totally dismantles like this, the, the meek, weak Jesus that sometimes we've created in our minds, right? Jesus, he was irritated here. He's exasperated. He is perturbed. He's disappointed. And he says it. He says, oh, faithless and twisted generation. How long am I to be with you and bear with you? Bring your son here. He's upset. He's, a, he's disappointed. He's exasperated. And while there is some debate as to who Jesus is addressing in this statement, I mean, is he talking to the, is he talking to the crowd? Is he talking to the father here? Is he looking right at that dad and said, yeah, you faithless and twisted one? Is that, what he, is that who he's talking to? Maybe, maybe he's talking to the scribes, right, that were arguing with his disciples. Maybe he's talking to them. Or is he talking to his disciples? Is he frustrated with his, these nine followers of his? Well, sadly, while it is, it is quite probable that maybe he was addressing all of the uh, above, which is why he uses the word generation, it does appear as though the primary source of Jesus' disappointment here is his disciples. Jesus had given these disciples power and authority to do the very thing that this father was asking them to do. So why were they unable to do so? Why couldn't they do it? That's a good question. Thanks. I asked it. It's a good question because it's a question that the disciples had as well. Not here in Luke, but if you read Matthew and Mark's accounts, the, the disciples, after Jesus ends up healing this boy, the disciples asked Jesus why they were unable to cast this demon out. Jesus, why couldn't we do it? What's up with that? I thought we could do this thing. They didn't understand. And in Matthew, Jesus tells them that it was because of their little faith. In Mark, he tells them that this kind of demon could not be driven out by anything but prayer. Whoa. See, apparently the disciples failed because of a lack of faith and a failure to turn to God in prayer. One at a time, they're like, I cast this demon. I don't know what they said. I don't know what they did. But, but one at a time, they tried to cast this demon out, and it's not working. It's not working. They don't, they don't have the faith to cast this demon out. And, and what they didn't do when they realized that this demon is too powerful for us, what they didn't do is turn to God in prayer, which tells me that they were trying to do this in their own strength and ability. They were relying on themselves instead of on God, who was the one who had empowered and given them the authority to do this thing. Pastor Kent Hughes says that their failure was not because they didn't try. They did their very best, no doubt, repeatedly, probably using previously successful formulas. This is what we've said in the past. Let's do it that way. Ken Hughes continues, he says, their problem was that they had subtly moved from trust in God to faith in the process, which is to say, 
faith in themselves. Brothers and sisters, this, this should serve as a warning to us as well, shouldn't it? It is so easy to, to forget that he is the source of our strength. He's the one who has called us. He's the one who has gifted us for his service. What gifts has God given to you? They're not for you. They're for him. They're to serve others, to bring glory to him. But it's so easy to start becoming self-reliant and to forget that he is the source of the power and the authority, a power and authority that he's given us in order to accomplish his purposes in this world. Brothers and sisters, we must, we must remain totally dependent upon him. We, we come to Jesus broken, don't we? We come to him, we say, I've got nothing, you've got everything. But if we're not careful, subtly over time, we can become self-reliant. Say, oh, I, don't, I, don't need to, I don't need to pray before I sit down and write a sermon. I've written sermons, I can do this. I can read the Bible and, and, and put together a, a message for this Sunday. And we stop leaning in and drawing from him and seeking him and asking him to lead us as we minister with the gifts that he's given us. What's your gift? And are you starting to rely on your own strength or are you continuing to rely on him? The disciples failed because they, they didn't have the faith to perform the task that they had been empowered and given the authority to, to do, and they didn't go to God in prayer. How sad is that? And yet, we can do the same thing, right? If we're not careful. But clearly, Jesus was frustrated. He, he's frustrated here. How long do I have to put up with this faithless and twisted generation? But I love the fact. I love the fact that Jesus didn't allow his frustration to prevent him from moving with compassion towards this boy. Jesus, Jesus looks at this pleading father and he says, bring your son here. Bring him to me. And in verse 42, we read that while he was coming, the demon threw him to the ground and convulsed him. But Jesus rebuked the unclean spirit and healed the boy and gave him back to his father, and all were astonished at the majesty of God. What the nine disciples had been, had been unable to do, no matter how many times they tried, Jesus was able to accomplish immediately, right? Listen, I want to read, I'm just going to read you what Mark, how Mark writes this in Mark chapter 9, verses 25 to 27. Mark 9, 25 to 27. He says that Jesus rebuked the unclean spirit, saying to it, you mute and deaf spirit, I command you, come out of him and never enter him again. And after crying out and convulsing him terribly, it came out and the boy was like a corpse so that most of them said, he's dead. But Jesus took him by the hand, lifted him up, and he arose. Isn't that great? As they're, as they're bringing this boy to Jesus, says, bring him to me. And as the boy is coming to Jesus, this demon gives one last ditch effort to try to destroy this young man. By the way, don't think for a second that when people are, 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 are considering coming to Christ, that Satan isn't doing everything in his power to go one last ditch effort to destroy you and keep you from coming to Jesus. He's always doing it. He's always doing it. That's why we see people just like this close to saying, yes, I'm going to surrender my life to Christ. But what do they do? They get distracted. Something happens. And, and then they back away. Right? That's Satan. That's the enemy of our souls getting in the way as people, that one last ditch effort, that one last distraction. He throws him to the ground and, and causes this, this boy to, to convulse at Jesus' feet. But Jesus rebukes the demon, sets the boy free, raises him up, 
And as Luke writes, Jesus gave him back to his father. Can you imagine? Can you imagine that moment for that dad? His son was mute. He couldn't even speak before this. Now he's healed. He's whole. He can talk to his dad. He can, he can, they can converse. Jesus restores him back into this relationship with his dad. It's an amazing picture of the, the, the restorative work of the gospel in people's lives. You know, marriages can be restored. Relationships between moms and dads that have been broken can be restored when people come to Jesus. It's a powerful, powerful thing that God does in the life of those who come to him. Verse 43, we read that all were astonished at the majesty of God. Everyone was astonished at the majesty of God. Now, just the, just the day before, just the day, 24 hours before that, Peter, James, and John had seen the majesty of God, right, up on the mountain. Now, they and everybody else who was there for this was seeing the majesty of God in, in another way as Jesus demonstrates his power and his authority over evil. Everyone who saw it, they recognized that they were seeing, what, what they were seeing was a display of the majesty of God. They knew. This is no ordinary man doing this thing. This is something extraordinary. This is a display of God's majesty right before our eyes. Everyone was in awe. But in verse 43, we, we continue and we read that, but while they were all marveling at everything that he was doing, Jesus said to his disciples, I'm amazing. Isn't that cool what I just did? Isn't that awesome? No, that's not what it says. While they were all marveling at everything that he was doing, Jesus said to his disciples, let these words sink into your ears. The Son of Man is about to be delivered into the hands of men. But they didn't understand this saying, and it was concealed from them so that they might not perceive it. And they were afraid to ask him about this saying. See, while everyone else was, was busy marveling at, at the things that Jesus was doing, Jesus turns his attention to his disciples. He, he pulls his disciples aside, his, his 12. And once again, he tries to prepare them for what was to come. Jesus says, let these words sink into your ears. For me, it's almost impossible not to hear my parents' voices there, you know? <laughs> Open your ears and listen to what I'm trying to say. Listen up. Now, for Peter, James, and John, again, who were up on the mountain just the day before, what did, what did God the Father say to them? This is my son, my chosen one. Listen to him. When Jesus says, when Jesus says, let these words sink into your ears, Peter, James, and John said, we're like, oh, we gotta pay attention. This is important. God said we're supposed to listen to him, and he's telling us to listen to him. We better, what he's about to say is really important. These guys should have been sitting on the edge of their, of their seats. I bet they were. And once Jesus has their attention, Jesus tells them that, that he's about to be delivered into the hands of men. Now, in Mark's gospel, he adds that after, after he says that you're gonna be I'm going to be delivered into the hands of men, in Mark's gospel, he then said, then they will kill him, and when he is killed after three days, he will arise. Now, this is the second time. This is the second time that Jesus has clearly warned his disciples about what's to come. About one week before this, just a few weeks ago in our study, we read about the time when, when he was with his disciples about a week ago up, on, uh, up in Caesarea Philippi, and that's where Peter confesses that you, Jesus, you are the Messiah. 
And after Peter said, Jesus, you are the Messiah. You're the the chosen one. Jesus then said, yeah, that's true. And the Son of Man must suffer many things and be rejected by the elders and the chief priests and the scribes and be killed and on the third day be raised. It's not what they wanted to hear, is it? It's certainly not what they expected. And now, about a week later, he tells them the same thing again. But guess what? They didn't understand it the first time, and they don't understand it this time either. None of this makes sense to the disciples. It, it doesn't add up. It, it, doesn't, it doesn't compute in their minds. They're still, they're, they're still expecting Jesus to set up his kingdom and to begin ruling now, right? This is supposed to happen now. You're here. The Messiah is here. He's going to go. We're going to go down to Jerusalem, and he's going he's to whoop some Roman butt, right? This is it. He is setting up his kingdom, and, and it's going to be great, and we're the disciples. We're his chosen ones, and we're going to be ruling with him here on the earth. This is exciting times, but not yet, not yet. And so they didn't understand He tells them again, very clearly for the second time, but they don't get it. And it won't be until after the crucifixion and after the resurrection that all of these words are going to come flooding back to them and they're finally going to understand what Jesus was talking about. But for now, for now, Jesus told them roughly what's going to happen. They didn't understand and Jesus did not persist and, and, and say, okay, let me spell it out for you. Okay, this is what's going to happen. Judas, you're going to do this. And then this is going to, he didn't do that. It just says that he can, it was concealed from them. Jesus, Jesus knew what was going to happen. He could have further revealed what was going to happen, but instead he concealed it. I don't think they could handle it. They, they were in denial. They, they wanted to focus on ruling and reigning with Jesus. Which is why, even after Jesus tells them, going to Jerusalem, going to die, even after all that, twice now he's told them that, even after all that, in verse 46, verse 46, we read this. An argument arose among them as to which of them was the greatest. Really? The the Messiah that you're walking with just told you he's going to die, and you're like, who's the greatest? Is it you? Is it me? But Jesus, knowing the reasoning of their hearts, took a child and put him by his side and said to them, whoever receives this child in my name receives me, and whoever receives me receives him who sent me. For he who is least among you all, among you all is the one who is great. Mark tells us, <clears throat> Mark tells us that this, this argument took place as they were traveling with Jesus back towards Capernaum. They're heading wherever they were for the Mount of, of Transfiguration. They're now heading back to Capernaum. These guys are convinced that Jesus is about to set up his kingdom. It doesn't, I don't care what he's saying. We know that he's going to set up his kingdom now. And so they're heading back and, and they're traveling with the Messiah. And the burning question on their minds is, which one of us is the greatest? Which one? I mean, clearly, we are all pretty great. I mean, that's why Jesus chose us, obviously, right? But who's the greatest of the greats, you know? Now, just based on the fact that Jesus had had handpicked Peter, James, and John for some special opportunities, like, like, like witnessing Jairus' daughter being raised to life, only Peter, James, and John got to go in to see that. And then Jesus just brought Peter, James, and John up for the transfiguration on the mountain. The other disciples don't even know what they saw because they weren't allowed to tell anybody, right? But, but Jesus pulled them away again, right? So just based on, on these things, you have to think, you have to think that, that these three disciples, Peter, James, and John, were probably pretty sure that they were the greatest, right? But I, I, heard, I heard one commentator, or read one commentator say that, have you ever considered the fact that maybe the reason Jesus always had Peter, James, and John with him is because he couldn't leave them out of his sight, you know? 
It's like the, it's like the student in the classroom that you always make sit right in front of you, right? Like, I, I can't trust this one to be left alone. You know, and you think about it. James and John were the sons of thunder, right? And Peter, oh man, what do you say? Impetuous Peter, right? So maybe that's why Jesus always brought those three with him. I don't know. But you, you have to think that some of the other nine disciples were probably thinking, well, I know it's not me. Peter, James, and John get picked for everything, you know? <laughs> they get picked for everything. They're Jesus' favorites. Or maybe they all thought they were the greatest, right? Maybe they were all so inflated, they're like, yeah, it's me. It's definitely me. Mark tells us that when they came to Capernaum and when he was in the house, he asked them, what were you discussing on the way? (laughs) I love this. But they kept silent for the first time ever. (laughs) They kept silent. For on the way, they had argued with one another about who was the greatest. Isn't that a funny picture? It's a funny picture. Jesus, knowing what they were discussing, says, hey, guys, what were you guys talking about back there? Sounded like you guys were arguing a, a bit. What, what's up? And the disciples, they, they, they immediately, they, they clam up. Boom. You could hear a pin drop. They're like, Ooh, me? What? Huh? What? Uh, I don't know. What? What? Huh? How, how about the Patriots? They're, they're pretty good these days, right? How about the weather in Galilee? It's really heating up, right? But Jesus, knowing what was in their hearts, that's the thing, right? He knew what, not, not just what they were saying with their mouths, but he knew what was in their hearts. And so he took a child and put him by his side. Now, in that culture, children were some of the most overlooked and insignificant members of society. That's hard for us to get our heads around, right? Because it's almost just the opposite in our culture, isn't it? We almost, like, we almost magnify and glorify and almost worship children in, in our culture, right? But in that culture, they were overlooked, insignificant. As one commentator points out, in Judaism... Children under 12, under 12 years old, could not be taught the Torah. And so, to spend time with them was considered a waste. It was a waste of time. One rabbi, one rabbi said this. He said that chattering with children, chattering with children is on par with morning sleep, morning sleep, and midday wine. He said all three of those destroy a man. All three. Morning sleep, so laziness. Midday wine, drunkenness. And chatting with children. They'll destroy you. Wow. We have come a long ways from that, right? They did not have a very high view of of children in that culture. So Jesus, okay, so Jesus, knowing the way that children were viewed in that culture, knowing this, and knowing the pride and the self-promotion that was in his disciples' hearts, he looks at them and he takes this child and says, whoever receives this child in my name receives me. And whoever receives me receives him who sent me. Now, Chuck Swindoll makes the point that in order for us to really understand the significance of what what Jesus is saying here, you have to understand the the significance of that word receiving, receiving someone, because it must be understood in the context of ancient Near Eastern hospitality. It means, to receive someone means to welcome as family and to care for one's needs. Wow. Jesus says that that, that a person's greatness is revealed by the way they treat others, specifically by the way that they treat the weak, the overlooked, and those who are otherwise considered insignificant. You know, anybody, anybody wants to receive somebody you can gain something from, right? 
It's true, right? You know it's true. When, when there's something that you can get back from it, it's easy to want to receive them, welcome them, because you might get something in return. But to welcome the weak, the insignificant, to welcome a child who in that culture has nothing to offer, wow, who's going to do that? Jesus says that when we welcome and serve others, receiving them in his name, which means to, to receive them as his representatives. We are, we are receiving them with the authority of Jesus. When we welcome people in his name, we are actually welcoming and serving him. We're actually welcoming and serving God the Father who sent him. And Jesus says, for he who is least among you all is the one who is great. The path to true greatness is not through self-promotion. That's not how you become great in God's eyes, is it? No. It's through humility, self-sacrifice, and service. Who does that sound like? Jesus. You know, the irony of this story is these guys are having an argument about it. Who's the greatest? They're having an argument in the presence of the one who is literally the greatest, right? Well, I'm the greatest. You're all not that great, right? He's great. He's great. In Mark chapter 10, Jesus said this. He said, even the son of man came not to be served, but to serve and to give his life as a ransom for many. That's our role model. When we say I'm a Christian, I'm a Christ follower, I'm Christ-like, little Christ, what are we saying? We're going to be like Jesus. And he's the one who didn't come to be served, but to serve and to give his life as a ransom for many. In Philippians chapter 2, I encourage you to read it this week, uh, verses 1 through 11, we're told that we're supposed to have the same attitude, the same mind as Jesus. We're We're supposed to think and act like Jesus And in verse three of that chapter, we're told that we're to do nothing from selfish ambition or conceit, but in humility, count others as more significant than yourselves. And Jesus says, you you 12, count this child as more significant than yourself. Wow. For he who is least among you all is the one who is great. The least among you all is the one who's truly great. And you just know that as soon as, soon as Jesus was out of earshot, one of the disciples looked at the others, broke the silence and said, well, if that's the case, then I'm the least. I'm the least. You know, I'm the, I'm the leaster of the least, right? I'm the leastest of, of all of you. And the others were like, no way. No way, I'm the least, right? They start fighting about who's the least now. In verse 49, we're told that that John answered, Master, we saw someone casting out demons in your name. We tried to stop him because he does not follow with us. But Jesus said to him, do not stop him for the one who is not against you is for you. Now, apparently, apparently the the disciples had come across another man who was casting out demons in the authority of Jesus' name. And apparently, he was doing it successfully. Demons were actually being cast out. And John says, we tried to stop him. We tried to stop him. We told him to stop because he's not one of us. John says, that guy wasn't with us when you called us. Remember, remember when you called us and you came off the mountain? You picked us, Jesus. Remember that? And he hasn't been with us. We've been following you all around. We've been eating meals with you, traveling with you, serving with you. He, we've been listening to you teach. We've been asking you questions after you teach so that we can understand the teachings. We've been with you this whole time. They, that guy hasn't been part of this. We told him to Stop because he's not one of us. 
Oh, we don't do that anymore, do we? <laughs> you know, it's important. It is important to absolutely stand for truth, 100%. Someone's compromising on who Jesus is and how people are saved, disassociate yourself from that, right? But oh, oh, church, oh, brothers and sisters in Christ, the church in the world today is fragmented over far lesser things, far lesser things. We fight over every little nuance of what we believe, every little nuance. And we say, we tried to stop them. And I think Jesus would say to us what he said to the disciples that day, don't stop him. He's not against you. He's for you. We're on the same team. We're on the same team. If, if, if what they're speaking is true, then celebrate the fact that demons are being cast out. Celebrate the fact that people are being set free, that people are coming to Christ. Okay, they, you, you like new music. They like old music. That's not something worth dividing over, right? Am I right? Okay, good. It's, 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 it's silly what we divide over. We have to stand for what's true. We absolutely do. We do not compromise on the fact that Jesus is God the Son, the Son of God, fully man, fully, fully God. We don't compromise on how a person is saved by grace alone, through faith alone, in Christ alone, right? These are truths, and we have to hold to that. Somebody starts changing that, we say, that's not true. And we need to warn people that that's false teaching. But we divide over far lesser things today, don't we? Jesus says, don't stop him. Don't stop him. And, and here's the issue. The issue here that Jesus is gonna address with, the, with John is the same issue that he just addressed in the previous verses. It's an issue of pride. It's an issue where John and the disciples are thinking, we're the special ones. We're the ones, right, that are supposed to be casting out demons, even though they just failed on the last one, right? I wonder, I, I'm curious, it'd be, we'll never, we can ask him when we get there. I wonder if this guy that they were trying to stop, I wonder if he might have been successful in casting out the demon in that boy. Because maybe he wasn't relying on himself. Maybe he was leaning in to the Lord and trusting God to work in and through him where the disciples had started to become self-reliant. John's upset. This guy is stealing our thunder, right? That's actually pretty funny because John is one of the sons of thunder. Um, but Jesus says, don't stop him. Don't. For the one who is not against you is for you. I want to close with just a couple of examples from, from the scriptures that I think that really highlight what Jesus is, 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 is saying here. One is from the Old Testament and one is from the New. In Numbers chapter 11, the, the, the Spirit, the Holy Spirit, rested on two men who were among the elders of the people of Israel. And they were, they, they were prophesying and they were speaking to the people for God. And Joshua hears about this and Joshua goes to Moses he goes up to Moses with concern, and he says, my Lord, Moses, stop them. Stop them. And listen, listen to Moses' reply. We'll have be up on the screen. You can read it. Numbers chapter 11, verse 29. But Moses said to him, are you jealous for my sake? Oh. Would that all the Lord's people were prophets, that the Lord would put his spirit on them. Joshua, this is a good thing. This is a good thing. They are being led by the Spirit of God. I'm not going to stop them, and I'm not jealous. You don't need to be jealous for me. We need to cheer on what the work that God is doing in His body all around the world. Praise God for it. And then in the New Testament, in Philippians chapter 1, while Paul was imprisoned, Paul is in prison, and he wrote about... There were some preachers who were preaching Christ, but they were doing so with, with ulterior motives. It, it, not good. They were trying to make things miserable for Paul. And, and this is what Paul says in Philippians chapter one. He says, some indeed preach Christ from envy and rivalry, but others from goodwill. The latter do it out of love, knowing that I am put here for the defense of the gospel. The former proclaim Christ out of selfish ambition, not sincerely, 
but thinking to afflict me in my imprisonment. What then? Only that in every way, whether in pretense or in truth, Christ is proclaimed. And in that, I rejoice. Now, if there was ever a case where you might have said, like Paul might have said, like, stop them, shut them up. They're making life miserable for me in here. Paul just said, yeah, that's true. But Jesus' name is being proclaimed. And in that, I rejoice. Wow. Isn't that awesome? Oh, man. God, give me a heart like Paul. Give me a heart like Moses. What's important is that, is, that, is that the good news is being proclaimed, that, that Jesus is being proclaimed. What's important is that people are coming to Christ, demons being cast out, people are being set free. If the message that's being proclaimed is true, rejoice, right? Praise God for it. Well, that is where we're going to leave off for today, uh, which actually brings us to the end of the third major section of Luke's God. We are flying through this book. It's unreal. It's only 33 weeks so far to get to, get to there. Um, but yes, we've been, we've been hanging out in this middle section of Luke's gospel from chapter 4, verse 14 until today. We've been looking at the ministry of Jesus in the region of Galilee. The Galilean ministry is now coming to a close as Jesus is now, next week we're going to read that he's going to set his face and begin his journey towards Jerusalem where he knows that he will suffer and he will die. And then we'll begin that next major section next week. Till then, go shine bright. Yes? All right, let me pray. Lord Jesus, we thank you so much for your word. God, I pray that we would learn as we, as we study your word that God, would you, would you show us the areas where maybe, maybe we are becoming self-reliant? Maybe we are becoming uh, proud. Maybe we are filled with self-promotion. God, would you break that down in us? What a gift, honestly, that you, that you confronted your disciples. What a gift that they failed because then you were able to point them to the reasons why they failed. And so, God, I pray that, that we as your as, as your children who are called to, to go and make disciples, would you, would you teach us now in such a way that we don't have to fall flat on our face the way that the disciples did, but you'd reveal the areas in our hearts that need to be cleaned up, that we might be just instruments that you're able to use to bring glory to you and that other people might come to know your son, Jesus. We pray for that. We pray it in Jesus' name, amen.